A reading from the book of John, chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your field of, lo of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus, said, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated, and uh, if I can invite Stan to come up. Um, we, uh, so Jim is away, um, but Stan will be preaching, uh, bringing, bringing God's word to us this morning. Uh, Stan knows Jim from uh, the, it's called the Incubator. It's like a, a group of pastors who are uh, overseeing like new churches or churches in the city um, that get together and you are at the Gallery Church, um, and you are also part of CMP, which is the City Ministry Program, um, which is part of City to City. Um, it's equipping uh, churches here in the city. But um, Stan, can I pray for you um, as you, you bring us God's Word? Father, uh, we, we are grateful uh, for your gift of, of your Word. Um, we're grateful that Stan can be with us this morning. Uh, I ask that you would just pour your spirit upon him, that you would uh, open open your word to us through him, uh, that again, that we would see you, Jesus, that we would meet you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is such a joy to be with you all this morning. Um, it is so good to see some familiar faces, too. Um, but the vast majority of you guys do not know me. 
And though you do not know me, I have heard much of you all uh, through Jim. I have a great love for Jim and the ministry he does here uh, in the city. I've known Jim for a few years now when we were uh, in a pastoral incubator together and had the privilege of us praying for each other's congregations here in the city. And so uh, there's been many number of uh, months where we were spent praying for this church and the work God is doing through Emmanuel here in New York City. Um, and though you might also not know me, you might know my boss, Matthew Hoskinson, Dr. Hoskinson, um, who is uh, about a foot taller than me and a way better preacher. And so I am apologizing that I might disappoint you uh, that I don't have Matthew's uh, speaking voice or style, but I do believe in the same God Matthew believes in, so hopefully that counts for something uh, this morning. But it is a joy uh, for me to be here with you all, uh, to be able to take our New Testament scripture and touch a bit of what we read in Romans and a bit of the Psalms that was read for us, and hopefully lead you this morning uh, to Jesus. Uh, if you don't know anything about my style of when I have the privilege to preach, I am a one-trick pony. In that, I desire one thing from any congregation that I have the privilege of speaking to you, and it is this, that at the end of this time this morning, at the end of our time looking at scripture, that you would see the beauty of Jesus, that you would see who he is, that you would be wowed by him again. And if this morning you don't know who Jesus is, that you would see the beauty of Jesus and that you would be wowed by him maybe the first time. And so as we jump into scripture, it is my prayer for us that you would be approaching the text with an open heart, that we would look to the scriptures with one prayer, Jesus, would you show us who you are? And so we'll be hanging out in John chapter 6, verses 25 to verses 40, we're going to move through those verses this morning. And uh, before we do, would you join me in just a word of prayer as we pray for our time this morning? Jesus, would you speak? Would you allow these words that we will dissect as one family to come alive so that we would fall in love with you for the first time or again? So would you have your way? In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 25 to 40. And before we jump into that text, there's a little bit of backstory that's required. And before we jump into the backstory, there's a little bit of backstory about me that's required to understand the backstory that's required for this text. About 15 years ago, uh, I'm a, a kid born and raised here in New York. And so about 15 years ago, I found myself at this juncture in my life where I was not quite sure of where to go and what to do. I had gone to university in the city to be a software engineer. Why? Because I'm Indian and that's what we do. And so I, I went to be a software engineer and I found myself after a few years of working in this great city, you know what I was supposed to do? You see, I had dreamt that at the age of 25, I would have retired, would have had a wife, two and a half kids, a dog, a white picket fence, somewhere up in the suburbs of New York City, which is what the goal of everyone that is born and raised in the city is to slowly move out to Westchester or Long Island, right? We've got to move up north or out east. 
But at 25, I found myself with neither. I was not married. I was still a bachelor. Didn't have two and a half kids because that's not humanly possible. Didn't have a white picket fence. I hate animals, so forget about the dog. And I didn't know what to do. And so I packed my bags and moved overseas. I found myself in a tiny village in southern India teaching. I was teaching philosophical ethics to a bunch of freshmen from all over the world at an international college. And it was an interesting experience. Now, if you ask me, Stan, moving overseas, packing your bags overnight, flying overseas, and now working in a brand new country where you've never lived your entire life, what did you miss most about America? And you would think I would say I missed the roads, which I did. I missed the Big Mac, which I did. But what I missed the most, and this is no joke, is this. Now, I would have gotten a bigger bag if I knew how large this, this church sanctuary is. But you might not be able to see this. But if you squint, you'll see what I'm holding in my hand. It is, class, what is it? Oreos. You all pass, you get to go to heaven. <laughs> Oreos. Now, if you fly international, you know you're allowed two luggages of 50 pounds each, and no joke, one luggage would be filled with all my stuff, with my clothes, with my books, whatever. And the second box that I would fly over every time I would visit back stateside to go back to India to work would be filled with Oreos. Because you couldn't get this there. You couldn't. The closest place was Singapore. They had to ship in. They had this milk production issue, and it tasted awful. So the only way I can get original Oreos was to actually fly from the U.S. Now, how many of you have actually experienced the glory of an Oreo? Just raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Look at this. Heaven will be populated with great people, I tell you. Oreo is amazing. Like... My wife says I spend too much time talking about rubbish, but this is, my friends, is not rubbish. This cookie was invented, if you want to know about it, in Genesis chapter 2. God made all great things, and the Oreo made its way into it. This is a cookie that cannot be described by just mere human words. It is amazing. The Oreo is majestic, and like any good cookie, wait for it, look at that, splits open. I'm lactose intolerant, but it does not matter. I will suffer milk with my Oreo because it makes it so much better. There is something about an Oreo. You might not know this, but on the back of every Oreo box, there is a 1-800-Oreo number that you could call. And don't tell me how I know, but there is a human on the other line of that number that will talk to you about the grandeur and the majesty of the Oreo. Should give it a shot. Try it. Call the number. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They are available for you. The Oreo. Now, this is what's interesting. There are some of you here this morning that have lived your entire life never trying this Oreo. And there is no amount of words I could say from this pulpit. There's no song that I could write about it. There is no 1-800-Dumbisco number I could give you that will ever get you to truly experience what this Oreo is. And there's some of you sitting there right now that's saying, I never had the Oreo, but I did have the key food substitute version of the Oreo or the Target-esque version of the Oreo. And I, I was, that was okay. I, I didn't love it. But listen, listen, listen. Key food doesn't cut it. And Target doesn't cut it. 
The, the other store brands don't cut it. There is no song I could sing about the Oreo that's going to make you grasp the full weight of the Oreo. The only way you will know the wonder of the Oreo is if you take it from the box and you put it in your mouth. The invitation is this. Don't just sing about it, but eat it. Don't just call the number, but eat it. And I know that sounds silly and goofy, but the invitation from John chapter 6 is no different. Jesus says, I am not calling you to sing about me, though I love it, nor am I asking you to read about me, though you should, or sit there and hear a guy lecture you for about 30 minutes, though that's great. The invitation is something far more personal. It's far more deeper. It is to take what you know and translate it to the other parts of your senses, to taste and see who I am, that you would try me out, that you would taste me, that you would partake of me, that you would not skate through your Christian journey, or that you would not accuse that Christians can possibly be real people, that you won't make your assumptions about Christianity, or you won't skate through your faith solely because of a song you sang or a sermon you heard, but because of an Oreo you ate. Jesus looks at us and says, I'm the real Oreo. I'm not key food. I'm not Target Oreos, I'm the real Oreo. And if you eat of me, you will be satisfied. And those are my two points. Jesus makes these two huge claims. You were made for satisfaction. And I'm the real Oreo. You were made for satisfaction, and I'm the one, the only one, who can satisfy. And those two concepts that I want you to begin to now look at John chapter 6 and see through those two lenses, you and I, every human on planet Earth was made to be satisfied, and Jesus says, but I'm the only one who satisfies. We're going to look at just four statements, not all made by Jesus, but four statements in how we could leave this place understanding, one, how you and I are made to be satisfied, and how Jesus alone is the one who satisfies. And so statement number one, if you care to jot this down, comes from verse 27, where Jesus says this. He says, do not work for food that perishes, for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, pause. Do not work for food that spoils. Now, up until this moment, we see one of the greatest miracles in Jesus's ministry has been performed. 5,000 men, not including women and children, because they were not included in the census at that time. So some scholars say about up to 15,000 people were fed. So imagine Madison Square Garden packed out, and a kid comes in, and Jesus takes five buns and two hot dogs and feeds everyone in MSG. 
Jesus performs this grand miracle, and everyone, the Bible says, eats to the point that food is coming out of their nose. They are stuffed. And they're so full that when Jesus starts retreating to a, another place, the crowd still follow him. And he says, you're coming to me because you know I can give you food. So he starts making these food references. And right after he says, you're coming to me not because of me, but because I can give you hot dogs and buns. He says, don't work for food that spoils. Leave it to the carpenter to use culinary terms to explain his teaching. Don't work for food that spoils. And you think he's talking about expiration dates on food that you see on every label, on the milk, on the butter. But he is not using culinary terms. He is using scientific language here. This is what he's saying. Do not work for food that spoils. Do not work for food. You are hungry. I am hungry. Everyone is hungry. And we will do whatever it takes to satisfy our hunger. We will move to a city that is extremely difficult to live in. My wife is from Georgia. I remember when I brought her here to New York City, she looked at me and she says, I don't understand why people will climb six flights of stairs and do laundry in another building and go into a subway car for 45 minutes all to travel a mile. Have they heard of the suburbs? That's what she would ask me. Have they heard that there is a better way? world out there with jobs everywhere. We will move, go through painstaking lengths to change our environment. We will educate ourselves. We will grind ourselves down to a pulp, working hours that no human body should work. We will befriend. We will fall in love again and again, all for the goal of maybe this time, I'll be satisfied. Jesus says every one of us does it, including this preacher kid. We will educate, we will move, we will save, we will strive, we will give, we will gain love, we will lose love. We will do it all for the hopes of being satisfied. But in the midst of that, Jesus says, don't work for food that spoils. He establishes for us class a scientific principle, the second law of thermodynamics. And what is the second law of thermodynamics? Everything loses heat, energy. Translation, everything expires. Everything expires. So the degree I have has an end date to it. The friendships I make have an end date to it. And the money I've accumulated slowly wastes away that every one of us is trying to be satisfied by cupping our hands with water. But the problem is no matter how tight I hold the water, there is a leak somewhere. There is a leak somewhere. If you're anything like me, you say, well, I'm getting married. And, and on my wedding day, when I look at my wife, I say, baby, I love you. During my vows, no matter what, I'm going to be with you in sickness or in health. But how do I end my vows? Till, till the second law of thermodynamics kicks in. Till death. 
If you're anything like me, somehow halfway through my life, I said, well, I don't need any of these vain things. Let me now be a minister, thinking that if I work for the things of God, of course that will satisfy. And so I become a minister, and for the past decade, this is what I realized. No. And when I begin to look to ministry to satisfy, this is what I'm doing. Jesus, in that statement, do not work for food that spoils, he establishes, A, everything is bound by the second law of thermodynamics, but B, the reason you and I are not satisfied by anything this world has to offer because it is on a trajectory of decay is because you and I have bought into a lie. And this is the lie, that you and I are just the total sum of our proclivities and desires that you and I are just the total sum of what we've accumulated here on earth, that we are mere mortal, that we are only flesh, that I am the collocation of atoms, I am based on my sexual proclivities, I am the total amount in my bank account or the degree that hangs on my wall, that that is all that I am. And Jesus Christ in that statement, do not work for food that spoils, establish A, Everything dies out, but B, you are more than meets the eye. You are not finite. There is more to your story. Do not believe the lie that you are the total sum of your flesh this morning. That you are the total sum of how you look and what you achieve on this side of eternity. You are more. You are more. And the reason you are not satisfied is because though everything around you expires, you do not expire. You are more. I love what Lewis says in response to that. He says this, the Christian says creatures are, are not born with desire unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Man feels sexual desire where there's such a thing at sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, hear him. He says, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The reason I'm not satisfied is that maybe Maybe there's more to who I am and more to my story. And when Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, the third thing he wants to establish to us is this. He wants us to see what sin actually is. Sin doesn't get a lot of airtime here in our city. Growing up in this city here in the 80s and 90s, sin was typically used to take a bat and whack someone over the head with. And so sin gets crowded and, 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 and pushed underneath. But Jesus wants you to see, listen, sin is real. And what is sin? Sin is simply when you and I take what is good. Remember in creation? When God looks at all the world and says, sun, moon, stars, heaven, earth, tree, vegetation, good, 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 good. 
And this is what sin is. I have a, if I have a board, usually now when I try to preach, I use a whiteboard. Sin is when you take the good, you cross out an O, and you make it the God. That's all sin is. When you take whatever is good, what God gave us, to actually be for our good and his glory, and we make it God. When we try to take the thing that was never meant to satisfy, to satisfy, and herein, at the heart of sin, lies the rat race every one of us is on right now. What gives us depression or anxiety? What causes us not to get a good night's rest what makes us frustrated, cling back to our addictive natures because the good has become God and we never feel full. First saying, do not work for food that spoils, which leads to the second statement that is made. The audience hears this and what is their response? It's a very natural response. Verse 28. They heard him say this, and they all replied. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Pause. Remember, the claim is this. We all want to be satisfied. Jesus only satisfies. Jesus says, you're working for food that spoils. And the natural response is this. They all begin to come together and say, okay, excellent. We heard you. Now tell us what we must do. What must I do? And say that again, it's important. What must I do? At the heart of that statement, Luther says, is homo incurvitus in se. As a human, I am curved within. Listen, that he says every human is self-centered, selfish, self-righteous, but we are also self-reliant. What must I do? It's a very normal thing to say. Just tell me, tell me the four things I should accomplish so I can get the thing you are talking about because I can figure it out. Tell me, and I will do it. We are self-reliant creatures. The solution is within. So when our primordial parents saw the good and decided to make it God, this is what they said. We know what's best. But if you could hear me this morning, this kid from New York is telling you, we suck at being God. We really do. We suck at it. We hate the jobs we pick and the degrees we choose and the apartments we live in and the neighborhoods we picked and the people we want to marry. We suck at being God. And yet somehow deep inside of our souls, we believe the lie that we're good at it, that we should keep going at it. What must I do? Just tell me the steps, Jesus, and I'll flex for you. It was interesting because they didn't just stop, what must I do? They continued to do the works, God, 
oh, why don't we spiritualize the do right now? Just tell me what I should do so I could get to the goal God has for me. Give me the steps to my moral ladder. And therein lies the heart of every major religion. The heart of Judaism, the Ten Commandments, the heart of Islam, the Five Pillars, the heart of Buddhism, the Eightfold Path, at the heart of Hinduism, living righteous deeds and acts to reach your moksha. What must you, what must I, what must we do to climb? The I plus the do are two of the most important words we put together as New Yorkers. I have done. If you don't believe me, you've not bought into LinkedIn, have you? <laughs> Every social media platform out there creeps in to show the world, look at what I have done. And so it's only natural that I approach Jesus with the same lens that the world has asked of me. Jesus, what must I do? Which leads us to the third statement. Jesus' reply to that. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Pause. The question was what? But his response was a who. They wanted Jesus to give them a philosophy, more truth, five more pillars, eight more commandments, nine ways to hack your life, 12 goals to be a better husband. Give me something. And Jesus says, satisfaction is not in a concept. It's not in an idea. It is not in a philosophy. It is in a person. It is in a he. It is in someone. Someone who has come down for you. Satisfaction is in a relationship I am inviting you to. Satisfaction is found in a person that you can love and that can love you. Satisfaction is in one who has come down from heaven. He has not defined who the he is yet, but in that statement in the he, he is saying you were made for more than anything this world has. You were made for an infinite relationship from one who has come down, which means from God. You were made to be in a relationship with God. Why? Because if you are to be satisfied in this relationship with God, then you are not the total sum of anything on this side of eternity. You are the total sum of how God has made you, and he has made you in his image. You fit with God. And if you rob yourself of God, he says, this relationship, 
You rob yourself of truly knowing who you are. Satisfaction is a relationship from the one who has come down. And when you know this, you say, Sin, how do you know I'm robbing myself of that life I was made for? He says it. He has come down and he gives you life. If you care about words, circle that word life. The word life can mean three different things in the Greek. Bios, which is biology, suke, psyche, psychology, or zoe. Which word do you think Jesus used? He didn't use bios, biology, or suke, psychology, but he used this word zoe, which is quality. He says, I have come that you could have a quality of life. I have come so that you would rise up within and know there is nothing that this world can say that'll define you. I define you. There is a quality of life I want to give you that nothing this world has can satisfy. A quality of life. I remember at the university I was working in, I was on the board and they would fly me to different countries. And because they would fly me, just imagine, they would fly me on these Middle Eastern carriers. And if you've ever been on these Middle Eastern airlines, they're nothing like Delta or Southwest. Man, they are amazing. Even like the storage in the luggage area is better than the seats we sit in sometimes here. And sometimes, a lot of times they would fly me business class kid from the Bronx flying business class on Emirates. My gosh. Like you sit there and you're sitting on this seat where eight people could sit on. And there's a time during this 14-hour flight where someone will come and they'll say, can we make your bed for you? And they will make your bed to sleep on this plane. And they will tuck you in. Listen, I have not been tucked in since I was 21 years old. Like to be tucked in. To be tucked in on an airplane. And I'm sitting on this airplane thinking, this is the life. That's Zoe. <laughs> That's Zoe. To reach a place where hell can break loose all around you and it doesn't rob you of who you are. Where you could have love gained or love lost, pink slips or hiring freeze, and it would not rob you of who you are. He says, I've come to give you life. How? In this relationship, which leads me to the fourth and final statement he makes. Who is he? Who is he? Verse 35. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus said, I am and whoever. Makes these two powerful statements. I know you're hungry. A relationship is what satisfies. A relationship with who? Me and whoever. Every other form of satisfaction demands that I strive. It's utterly dependent on my works. 
And what keeps me from truly being satisfied is I keep stepping into this place of God that I don't belong. I keep making the good God, and it makes me thirsty as one who runs a marathon and is offered syrup at the end. It's liquid, but it does not satisfy. Holding my life and watching it leak before me. And Jesus looks and says, I know the problem of sin is real. And I want you to know there is no amount of striving that's going to fix your problem. There is no amount of what must I do that's going to fix it because you are the problem. I am the problem. But in that statement, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever. This is what he's establishing. I am inviting everyone and anyone to truly be satisfied in me because I'm going to strive. I'm going to run the race you can't run. I'm going to strive and be the true God that you can never possibly be. I'm going to show you how much you really mean to me and why you can be sure and take it to the bank that not only does Jesus satisfy, but he satisfies me irrespective of where I've been or what I've done or what I've tried to stuff my face with. And he says, Stan, how, where, where do you see it? It's in the statement, I am the bread of life. How can I be sure that Jesus is willing to go to the great lengths of truly satisfying me from walking away from these good things I've made God and putting them in their right place so that I can be joined back with the relationship I was made to have with God himself, where I no longer have to climb and work, but be confident he has come and worked for me. How can I be sure? It's in the phrase, the bread of life, because he uses that phrase one more time, doesn't he, church? The night he was betrayed, he took the bread. His final meal with the disciples. He gave thanks and he broke it. He said, this is my body. Pardon? Say that again. Because when everything in this world that we strive for to satisfy leaves us broken and empty-handed, Jesus Christ on the cross absorbs our brokenness so that through his brokenness we might experience wholeness in a relationship with God. One bread feeds one mouth. Broken bread feeds multiple mouths. Whoever, whoever, the cross was Jesus's invitation to the world. What are the parameters? Do you suck? Come on and eat. Are you hungry? Try me. Are you sick of key food Oreos? I've got the real thing for you. He broke himself 
so that through his breaking, if he was willing to go to death on a cross so that I might be satisfied, listen, there ain't no mountain high enough, nor any valley low, that our Savior is not willing to go so that we can experience two true Zoe life, our souls being tucked in every night with the confidence of knowing I am loved, I am secure, I am his. He was willing to put an end to my little satisfactions so that I could eat of him through death on the cross and through his resurrection. And that's his invitation today. Eat of me. Don't just sing, but know me. You and I are invited to know him to chase after him, to argue and fight with him, to, to feast of him, to weep at his feet, to mourn, to celebrate, to run to him. And do not, he pleads with you and me, do not be satisfied with someone else's story. Make it your own. Do not be happy with someone else's song. Make it your own. Come and participate. And that's it. It's a personal invite. Don't rely on others. And I would be remiss if I don't say, you're not supposed to do it alone. There is power in community. To journey on this Jesus knowledge trip, to see who he is, to partake, to be satisfied with brothers and sisters who have gone before you and know the path, or with those that are searching with you. Go all into a community like Emmanuel. Because I promise you at the end, it actually, actually is amazing. He actually is beautiful. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the invitation you give us to know you. We thank you for Jesus, for the satisfaction he promises. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for every person in this house that today they would see that your invitation is personal. For my brothers and sisters who, who know you, God, that you call them to even a deeper understanding of who you are, from glory to glory, new mercies. So Jesus, this is my prayer, that every person, young or old, would leave this place with a deep hunger to eat of you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel.
And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.